This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today, we have Dr. Amber Mayfield-Yates. We are talking about sickle cell. She is a hematologist. She'll introduce herself. Dr. Yates, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. <laughs> do you want to give a, back, a bit of background into who you are, what you do? Well, I guess if we go all the way back to the beginning, I'm a Louisiana girl. I'm born and raised, and I did my medical training medical school at the Medical School of Louisiana State University, Go Tigers, uh, School of Medicine in Shreveport, which is actually my hometown. So that was pretty awesome to go to medical school in my hometown. And then I made the trek to Memphis, Tennessee, where I did all my pediatric training. So I train at Labonner Children's Hospital, where I got my pediatric training. And then I was super fortunate to move just a little bit down the road and um, did my pediatric hematology oncology training at one of the best institutions in the country at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which I think most people probably associate really just with taking care of kids with cancer, but that's not all they do. And they do take care of children with other chronic medical conditions, specifically kids with blood disorders. And so I did my training there and was fortunate to work with my research mentor who happens was Dr. Russell Ware, who is a very prominent physician in the world of sickle cell disease. And that's where I fell in love with sickle cell disease and decided that that was the area that I wanted to focus my career on and was fortunate actually to work for him for some time. And about seven years ago, got the opportunity to move uh, to Texas Children's Hospital here at Houston, which is something I was never planning to do because Houston is gigantic and I never envisioned myself here. But it was an amazing opportunity. And so shortly after I got here, chair at the time gave me a pretty amazing opportunity to co-direct the Sickle Cell Center here, which was kind of an opportunity of a lifetime. And I graciously snapped it up because I couldn't imagine anywhere else giving me that kind of opportunity and so with my co-director help lead a center of about a thousand kids with sickle cell disease, which is one of the largest in the United States where we lead, you know, clinical care research and other such efforts for those children who are dealing with this lifelong condition. So for, for people who don't know, and this podcast is really for the general public, but we will get a little into the details for people who actually have sickle cell or other clinicians who want to know more about sickle cell. But can you start at the really basics of what is sickle cell disease? So sickle cell disease is an inherited blood disorder. So meaning that a child is either born with this condition or not, and they inherited, a, meaning that it's passed down in families. And so this is a condition that is one of the conditions picked up on newborn screening. So those blood tests that are done on newborn babies right after they're born in the hospital. And so we often know about this condition before babies are even about four weeks of age. And it is a condition that affects the red blood cells, the oxygen-carrying blood cells in the blood. And kind of from a simple perspective, the problem is, is that rather than maintaining this round donut-type shape that the red blood should be, which maximizes its ability to move and squeeze through really small spaces, the red blood cell becomes 
deformed and misshapen and lo- resembles a sickle. So like old school, you know, harvesting device, a sickle, or realistically, most people would really say that these red blood cells look more like a, a really pointed banana or crescent moon. And this red blood cell causes damage pretty much from head to toe and gives a whole host of complications to these people with this condition. I'm going to put myself in the place of, I'm going to pretend that my significant other and I have, we don't, but let's pretend that we do. I We have a child with sickle cell disease so we come into you and said and we tell you this is the first time we're meeting you we are both healthy but we have the child with sickle cell disease what what does that first conversation look like it's usually a lengthy one because it, it well, there's a podcast so let's pretend that you're having that conversation then okay first i would tell you exactly what i what i just talked to you about like i I would be drawing on some paper mm-hmm. and <laughs> giving you a visual look of what the red blood cells look like. So we would talk about the red blood cells and, and their misshapen characteristics and why they cause problems that the, these red blood cells compile up. They get stuck in blood vessels. So as the red, as the blood vessels get smaller and smaller and smaller in your, your body, these red blood cells that are sickle shaped or crescent shaped get stuck in the blood vessels and then they get piled up on top of each other and they basically cause kind of of a clot or a blockage and the blood flow and then some part of the body whether that be in the bone or in the brain or in the lungs then has an area of the that doesn't get blood flow to it and then that causes damage to that area and that's what causes the complications of sickle cell disease and the ways that we see that are most commonly i think the most common thing people know about sickle cell disease is if that happens in the bone then there is pain associated with that and so that being the most common complication of sickle cell disease is that painful events or vasoocclusive crisis is the other term people might use for that. Or if that happens in the spleen, which is part of our immune system that helps us fight off infections, then actually over time, the spleen actually stops working and putting these children at high risk of infections, which means unfortunately for these children, every single time that they have a fever, they have to come in and be seen and go to the emergency room and have blood drawn and get a dose of antibiotic, not uncommonly have to get admitted overnight, which is a huge ordeal for these families and it disrupts their lives. And then they can get acute chest syndrome, which is kind of looks like a pneumonia where they have rapid breathing or cough or difficulty breathing. And so we talk about some of the complications that might happen to their child with this disorder. But also in that first visit, what I would tell you as a parent of a child with sickle cell disease is there's things that we can do, that there are therapies that we can do for your child with sickle cell disease. And the first one being that penicillin, which is an antibiotic given twice a day for the first five years of life has greatly reduced the risk of death in childhood with this condition. And it's allowed almost every child with this disease to make it to to adulthood, which is an amazing, an amazing thing. And it's such a simple intervention, but it's made a huge impact in this condition so that almost all of my patients become grown-ups, which is an amazing thing. And that now we have other treatment options that can change this disease and make it not so severe. The one that has the most information is called hydroxyurea, where it actually helps your red blood cells maintain that round shape instead of being sickle, and that leads to less complications. But there are newer ones that are just starting to come out of research studies that hopefully in the next five years or so will be real options that we can offer families. But that there will be medications that we can offer them to make their child healthier 
and to hopefully have less problems than the years past. So if I were a parent sitting in your waiting room, what I would want to know is, well, what does that look like for my child growing up? Are they going to be normal? Are they not going to be normal? Are they going to be be able to have a job? Are they going to be bed bound? And you said some of them reach adulthood, meaning some of them don't. Mm -hmm. So what can a parent expect when they're told their child has sickle cell as far as just overall prognosis? The expectation is that your child is going to become an adult. You should expect that your child should live a normal childhood. This disease varies a lot. So this often is a very challenging discussion to have. It depends on which type of sickle cell disease your child inherits. It varies a lot. So SS, the most common form of sickle cell disease, is severe and can have a lot of complications. But other forms like SC disease can be less severe and have less complications. You Painful events are probably going to be a part of your life as a parent taking care of a child with sickle cell disease, but we can teach you how to manage a lot of that at home so that you don't need to come into the hospital. Most of our children go to school full-time. Most of them rarely need hospitalizations. Um, Most of them come to see us, you know, just for routine clinic visits. Most of them really don't notice a big difference or don't seem different than other children in their classrooms. Rarely people will be able to tell that they're different from the outside looking in. These kids adapt and there are very few things that other people can see about them that would make them noticeably different that people would say, oh, that child's sick or there's something wrong with them. So most of the time, parents won't even have to discuss this diagnosis with other people, right? It's not like people in the classroom, their child are going to know something's wrong and speculate about what's wrong with their child or things like that. Like some other conditions that are a little more physically obvious. That's a, one of the, one of the few, one of the things we don't have to usually worry about as much with sickle cell disease, but it is a condition that can cause a lot of school absences. And so that's something that we have to talk about because it's unpredictable and painful events can occur without warning. And so we have to prepare for that. We have to prepare the school for that and the parents for that. We are become an advocate with the parents to help the school understand that and help the child be on where they need to be in school and keeping them caught up with their school work and that they don't fall behind and that the school doesn't cause them to not be able to make up work like they should be able to, right? Because sometimes these parents might keep them at home to treat their pain at home, but not necessarily come see a doctor, right? So they don't have a doctor's note every time that they have a pain event, right? And the school needs to understand that. And how often are they getting, would someone be getting a sickle cell crisis where they're having this they painful all event? The rights. So how often... Or do you have an average of how often a child would be having a sickle crisis? There, there's not a, an average number of, of painful events because there's so many variables that play a role in the painful events. And so some children can go an entire year without a painful event. And other children might have a, a painful event every month. You know, that can be as mild as I, I'm achy and I just need to take a dose of Advil or Tylenol all the way to, you know, I need to come into the hospital and be admitted and get medication through an IV. And so that is one of the, from my perspective as a physician taking care of children with this disorder, I think one of the greatest challenges of this condition is its unpredictability, inability to plan your life like you would want to, right? I find that children might not commit to activities that they might want to do because they're afraid, well, what if day before I get sick and I'm hurting and I need to go to the emergency room and I let down my friends because I can't go or things like that. And so for me, it's one of the frustrating parts of of this condition. And it is one of the major benefits of treating the condition with a medication like hydroxyurea because you have fewer pain events on a medication like hydroxyurea than that part 
gets better. There's a lot less of these unpredictable, painful events. And so they feel like they have a more normal childhood and they have less interruptions to their normal daily life. That's a really rewarding thing to see, to see a child go from having a lot of disruptions to their life or being really hesitant to plan activities or participate in what I would consider normal childhood activities, like maybe go to a dance class or play a musical instrument or something that they would want to do, but are afraid to commit to because of, you know, what if I miss a bunch of classes or sessions or rehearsals and then move on to have a medication that reduces the number of those sort of events. And now they're able to participate in those sort of normal childhood activities. That to me is a a reward. And we definitely see that with appropriate treatment. And what are some of the things that a parent or child can do to lessen the amount of sickle cell crises they have? So there are um, definitely things that families and patients can do. The number one thing is hydration, hydration, hydration. So dehydration increases the likelihood that the red blood cells are going to sickle. And so hydration is a huge component of sickle cell therapy. And as you can imagine here in Houston is a big problem in the summers. And so you know, talking to families about hydration and talking to them about, you know, what color is your urine, right? And so having families understand that this is a constant battle and that you just have to drink more fluids than your friends, which at school also comes with the idea that they need water all day and that the school is going to have to let them have water all day, which means they need to have a water bottle all day long, which also means they need to be able to go to the bathroom all day long. Avoiding extremes in temperatures. So particularly cold temperatures can trigger sickling events. Layers of clothing are often in a great way to kind of deal with this, particularly in Houston, right, where we have weird winters where it might be a little bit cold, not super cold in the mornings, but then by the, you know, it was like 40 this morning, but it's already almost 70 degrees now, you know, where they can be bundled up when they need to when it's chillier, but then also peel off layers as the day goes on, because often the classrooms can be are unpredictable in their temperatures. So having ways to kind of maintain their temperatures, swimming can be a challenging activity for these children. It's not impossible, you know, being prepared for that when you get out of the pool, drying off all the water droplets off the skin so that they don't get a chill afterwards, not staying in the wet swim clothes for prolonged periods of time. You know, I can remember as a child just staying in your wet swimsuit and going into the, you know, air conditioned house, staying in your clothes all day long. That's not usually a good idea for these kids because they get cold and then can precipitate sickling. And those are two kind of big categories of things that we talk to, to families about doing. Being active is actually important. So, you know, we're not talking like a strenuous exercise plan, but being active is good. I think, you know, for any sort of chronic medical condition, not being totally inactive is not good. Moving their arms and legs and being active in some form is helpful because the inactivity actually makes us worse. And even in the midst of the painful event, getting up and moving around, having some physical activity actually can make uh, things better. And so those are kind of the big things that families can do to prevent these vents. I think, you know, hydration is probably the number one thing they hear us talk about like every single time they see us. Um, They probably get tired of us talking about water. And what about future therapies like gene therapy? It seems like theoretically gene therapy would be able to fix this. Correct. So that is one of the upcoming therapies that are coming. Right now, big therapy choices are you can use blood transfusions for sickle cell disease. They're predominantly used for kind of acute complications that come up. We have hydroxyurea, which would be kind of a disease modifying therapy. And Bone marrow stem cell transplant can be curative, but most of the results have been patients who are fortunate that they have a sibling who can be their donor. And and those patients, 
the results are phenomenal, but that leaves a lot of patients who don't have that possibility. And so for that patient population, we're hopeful that gene therapy is going to be the answer. So yes, there are several research studies looking at the role of gene therapy in sickle cell disease because we feel like gene therapy, which can introduce into the DNA the ability to make non-sickle hemoglobin, could really change this disease. Because interestingly enough, we don't need a sickle hemoglobin to be 0%. That's what's great. Because even the parents of these children make sub-sickle hemoglobin. They just make more of the hemoglobin A, the non-sickle hemoglobin, than they do the sickle. So we just need to change the kind of the ratio and the favor of the non-sickle hemoglobin. And so gene therapy has the potential to really change this disease and also, of course, open up the number of patients who would be eligible for treatment. And so there were at the recent American Society of Hematology annual meeting just this past weekend, there were too numerous to count discussions about various ways and various techniques in which we could use gene therapy to treat this condition. You know, it's early. How far away is that? As kind of a standard treatment right now, they're all still research studies. So for kind of an open, everybody, you know, who wants it could potentially get it. We're talking multiple years away. We're still talking well within phase other th- three clinical trials. Other th- right other countries have differing laws regarding <laughs> research in this area. My impression, this is not my area, but my impression is that researchers in the U.S. are somewhat handcuffed in what they can do regarding gene therapy. I would say the major companies that are looking at gene therapy are doing the same thing in Europe and are they? So they're all, is everyone really on the same, kind of the same Correct. Pro, like progress path? For right now, for this particular condition. And so right now there, I think part of it is, is that we're going to need a lot of long-term information for safety, just mm-hmm. like, you know, you would for any major treatment. And so that's just going to take a lot of time, but it's very optimistic based on what we're seeing from initial studies, very optimistic. And even if it's not curative, right, in the same way that a a stem cell transplant might be, right, even if it modifies this disease, right, significantly lessens the number of painful events, reduces the amount of organ damage that happens, right, this potentially would be a fantastic treatment option to offer people, even if it's not, you no longer have sickle cell disease sort of treatment option. And so to me, this has the potential to change our disease. But what, you know, in the meantime, there are multiple other disease modifying therapies that are also in the process of being fast tracked to like the FDA. So those are more likely to kind of be coming out before we get to gene therapy being kind of a more regular offering outside of clinical trials. And we were talking a little bit offline. So there, there's an opioid crisis and there are a lot of people dying of illegal and legal narcotic overdoses. That's a topic for another day. But in, in your specific practice, you're dealing, from what I understand, with kids who are having these sickle cell, these sickle cells clotting their system causing severe pain, but the unfortunate, I guess, fallout of making the narcotic guidelines and laws and all these other things, it's meant to reduce overall harm of narcotics. But in with all things, there's a balance. And you were talking about how that that makes treating and taking care of the little kids that you see difficult. It definitely has had, I feel like, a, a negative effect on my patient population. You know, I understand the the basis of these concerns and, you know, where the restrictions and rules and where they're coming from. But I have a patient population that has a condition that's known to cause severe pain. Patients describe this pain as like 
having glass in your blood vessels, just going down your blood vessels, you know, like bone crushing pain, pain that the majority of people will never experience in your life. And they don't usually have it once, right? This is repetitive events in their life. And we don't have a medication at this time point that treats the cause of the pain right now that like would go to the area of where the pain is happening and would do something to alter that. So we have to treat the pain, the symptom of the pain and the best treatment and what we have shown to make the greatest impact are, are opioid medications. And despite knowing all that information, you know, this group of patients was not excluded from from any of these sort of restrictions. And so, you know, I've been sometimes limited, right? You know, well, you can only have a three-day supply. Well, these events often can take last five to seven days in length. And so, you know, a three-day supply might not be enough for an individual patient to get them through the entire course. So then they might have to go back to the pharmacy again and get another uh, prescription of medication, which is just a pain and frustrating for the family when they know what their child needs. It also affects the way, fortunately, not as much in pediatrics, but definitely for adult patients, the way that emergency rooms and physicians might address them when they come in. Because these families and these patients often know which medications work really well for them because they've had experience. They're knowledgeable and that doesn't always go really well. <laughs> when people have that sort of information and it it just makes for a uh, difficulty and I, it makes it, you know, it's not impossible. And certainly my nurses have helped me tremendously. They know the, you know, the right people to contact the right forms I need to fill out all of that. It's just a, a lot of extra work sometimes if I want to do a longer course of treatment, you know, sometimes people don't recognize that, yes, the patient has had more than one prescription of hydrocodone acetaminophen from three or four different doctors, but all of us work in the exact same hematology clinic. We're colleagues. We all work in the same system. We can all see each other's prescriptions. We know what each other are doing. We're working together as a team, but from, you know, the prescription monitoring program's perspective or an insurance perspective, then that looks like the patient is seeking care from multiple providers, which is not fair. They're not. They're going to the exact same place they always do. You know, they're doing their job. I'm calling my hematology practice. I'm asking them what I should do. You know, we have to, as physicians, be advocates for them and say, no, they're not. They're doing what we've asked them to do. And definitely, you know, sickle cell doctors have done that. And it's, it's starting. I feel like we're starting to make that impact and make that be known, but it just takes time and it's frustrating. I think you make some really good points. My takeaway is that people in the healthcare field really need to advocate for their specialty and for the people that they're taking care of. And and unfortunately, when legislation is going through, it, it is in everyone's best interest for people of a vested interest in a certain piece of legislation to be actively involved. Because I think that cancer patients were probably very actively involved in the, the narcotic guidelines, as were palliative care people. And for whatever reason, people with sickle cell, parents of kids with sickle cell just weren't asked to sit at the table. And when you... When terms are used of like patients and statistics, they say that, you know, the death of a million people is a statistic. But when you're sitting in the office with, say, little Susie's parents, this little cute five-year-old kid, and she's crying in pain, like she's act like screaming in pain because she's having a sickle crisis, I can imagine it's very difficult for you to say, well, because of the, these rules that are now in place, I can't treat you appropriately, even though I did several months ago. Well, what, what it's done for me actually is that they have to often come in more than they were before. Because in the past, we would do like, do you have meds at home? Do you have enough that if they were to have a crisis that you could start treatment at home before coming in? 
But now, given these rules and all this monitoring, right, we like, well, you have to wait until you need it before we're going to give you any meds, right? Which just seems like we're waiting for a shoe to drop instead of being proactive for these families. And so, and it just is frustrating. And the families know it now and they get frustrated by it. And then, then they're restricted. Like they have to find a pharmacy that's going to have this medicine. And so their kids, you know, they've gotten, they've gotten seen, they've actually gotten the prescription for the medication that they need. And now they've got to figure out where in the world they're going to find this medicine to treat their kid, to keep them out of the hospital. And it's just like this multiplying need, you know, unfortunately, in pediatrics, you know, I have a pharmacy here that keeps most of the meds that I need. And so I strongly advise all my patients to just get it here before you leave the, the hospital building after your clinic visit, if you're being seen in clinic or the emergency room, because once you leave here, I can't guarantee you're going to be able to find it in your local pharmacy, right? Because local pharmacies don't want the responsibility or concern or, you know, these sort of things that come up with these medications. So they'll go home and then think I can get it at, you know, CVS around the corner. Well, CVS around the corner is like, we don't have that med. We don't want to carry that med. We don't want to deal with that medication, right? And the possibilities that come with holding that sort of medication in our pharmacy. And so I just feel like it gets exponential over it. And I agree that that probably the advocacy piece was a huge component of it. And I think we were kind of, there was some of this, like not being fully aware of what was happening and what was going to be the down, the trickle down effect of what, of these sort of recommendations, kind of not fully getting the whole picture. And now we're really seeing what that looks like. And it's not fun. It's really frustrating. We just, I think we just thought it's obvious these patients shouldn't fit into these categories. Right. And, I, and, and we, you know, and I think we were just naive to think this family, these patients deal with a disease that like pain is just like the number one thing they deal with. And I think naive, we just thought, Oh, it's no big deal. We'll be fine. I think when people are very accomplished in their jobs and their careers and you, you're seeing little Susie sitting in front of you crying and you know that her life will be much better if you can give her the appropriate narcotics and her parents are great and they take really good care of her and they're using it as they're supposed to be using it. But I've done a lot of speaking engagements and I sit on a variety of boards and I will tell you, and this is also the feedback I get from other friends and colleagues of mine that are involved in a variety of boards and meetings and assorted other things that it's typically not people like yourself who deal with children like this who have severe pain issues they're not sitting at the table you typically have someone from the pharmacy who's worried about their liability or you have someone from the insurance company worried mm-hmm. about copays and really taking care of that child which is really why we're all here gets lost in the conversation i would agree right because i'm the one that's in, in front of that family right that I can only give you this many pills today because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it adds up. Like each person has like a different viewpoint of what what this prescription or what it means to them. And it's all very different at each stage of what has to happen. And I like to tell people jokingly that I'm sure I'm on some watch list, right? This is a patient population that I take care of. I can guarantee you're on a watch list. Right. I feel certain I am. I am. I I can promise you you are. And I'm okay with that because it comes with a responsibility of taking care of this patient population. I know I take care of this patient population. I, you know, I talk to these families a lot about these medication. I feel that I'm doing what's the best for them. We actually were just at a meeting where we just were shown that, you know, if we do, if we're proactive, take care of this, 
that we're, these patients are less likely to be admitted, which is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I can't do that unless they have the medications they need. And there's, um, a, there's a large subset, as I'm sure you know, there's a large subset of people in the health prescribers in the healthcare field that are because of a lot of the laws that are c- coming down. And there's, and I am the first to admit, there's a narcotic crisis, and that's a whole other podcast or a whole other conversation. But the problem with giving single word, like these little bullet points, narcotics are bad, everyone has to come off, is the nuances are left or lost like kids with sickle cell. And I think it's easy for a pharmacy executive making the decision from 10,000 miles away saying, we don't want the liability of carrying these medications. Correct. You know, but we've shown actually that the mortality rates for these patients from opioid overdoses and, you know, hospital mortality, it's it's not changed, not changed at all. There've been several, there were definitely presented at this recent meeting. And then also previously, like that nothing's changed actually about the, you know, like our prescribing chins haven't gone up and what we're prescribing for this patient population has gone up. Their deaths aren't going up related to opioids hasn't gone up. You know, it's basically stable. And so it's really frustrating. You know, I understand that what we're seeing nationwide is changing, but you know, we're talking about a very specific population of patients and what's happening with that specific population is not changing, but they're being affected by a much larger issue that a lot of times actually isn't even necessarily prescription opioids that are being lumped into when people refer to the opioid crisis. It's not even always just prescription opioids, what people are talking about when they talk about that subject. And so it's a, it's a frustration of mine. I'm, you know, I'm hopeful. And certainly I feel like some large groups are finally starting to get kind of invested in that and stating that, you know, we need to make some changes and that got to be proactive. And, and certainly I feel like several hematologists and sick, like even in the state of Texas, you know, several of us have called and I feel like we've gotten some response like, okay, you have to do more than just look at the individual doctor's name and the prescription. <laughs> monitoring program, right? Literally at the exact same address. Like there has to be a little more thought process in it. And I feel like that once it's been explained and has been discussed that we've gotten some response, but it has taken that. But I do feel like once there's been an open dialogue that we have gotten some response. And so I can at least appreciate that. I feel like we've gotten some traction. It just, I just feel like it's just taken a lot of time and effort, but I, I do feel hopeful and that I hope that things are getting somewhat better and that I don't get as quite as many phone calls about these sort of things? Do you know that your patient is XYZ? And I'm like, yes, yes, I do. Um, and I do my part. I still go into the prescription monitoring program and check in on my patients. That's my responsibility. I still do that, right? I mean, I don't think I'm excused from that just because my patients have sickle cell disease. I still have a responsibility to make sure that everything looks good and that, that there's nothing that I'm concerned about. I, I have a responsibility as a physician as well. But I also talk to my family. We want you to get your prescriptions from us and from us alone. This is for your prescription protection and my, you know, like we tell them all those things too, because it's in their best interest to do that. We don't want multiple physicians, you know, managing their painful events. And so we all have a role to play. I don't want to just like be like willy nilly with, you know, medications. I want to do my part and I don't mind doing my part, but I just, some of the restrictions are just, it's just a frustration we use, right? It's not uncommon for us to use long acting medications in these patients, right? It's not uncommon if a patient gets discharged for us to use long acting morphine. We have some teenage patients who need maybe longer stints of medication who use methadone and things like that. And so they need medications for long periods of time. And that can, can, those are often patients that we have real challenges with where I have to talk to insurance companies. They don't like the fact that I write my, I don't write a whole month of drug at one time. I write it like every two weeks because that's how often I see the patient. But it's just my preferred way to take care of the patient. So I feel like we're all safe. I'm hopeful. And maybe one day I'll have something better non-opioid to use. That would be amazing. But 
it's the best choice I have right now. Well, there's a lot of research being done. Any closing thoughts for someone? I'm thinking specifically of someone who just found out that their maybe soon-to-be child has sickle cell. What I would say is that it is not the same disease that it was 40 years ago, that it looks very different, that we have treatment options, that we have hope, that we have, that it doesn't have to look like it did for your uncle 40 years ago, and that these children are not just living into adulthood, but are thriving, going to college having jobs as adults. And so, yes, your child has a chronic medical condition, but we have a ways to manage it. And we're going to work together to figure out the best way to do that for you and your family. And that we're a team and that we're going to, one day we're going to be in my office crying about that you have to leave and go see an adult doctor. Because you only deal with children. I only deal with children. It's a it's an amazing part of my job is seeing these kids grow up. But then eventually at some point we end up in my office crying about. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that's very sad to see a kid. You've seen them really grow up and then pass them along. Right. Because we've become kind of, um, we're kind of a mixture of uh, a specialist and a primary care doctor for these families, as you can imagine. And uh, it is, it's bittersweet. It's an amazing journey. Um, it's, it's hard for the families too, right? They're very comfortable with us and not let, you know, know our system and uh, know our nurses, and, you know, all of it, but it's a good thing. They're adults and they need adult doctors. They, you know, right. As most uh, chronic medical conditions do, right. The complications often change with time. And there are things that happen as adult patients with sickle cell disease that I'm not as knowledgeable about. So they need. Dr. Yates, thank you so much for all of your time. Do you want to discuss ways people get, I think you said you had a Twitter handle and anything else? Oh, yeah. So, Social media? Uh, tweet at uh, Sickle Cell Doc, where I tweet about pretty much all things sickle cell, just to get more information out there and to advocate for people with sickle cell disease. Trying to get right now the House vote for the Sickle Cell Act that's up right now. And that's my big role right now on social media. I'm trying to figure out the next encourage the next or encourage the people you treat or anyone they know to call their representatives and yep. get that done. Yeah. I think it'd be hard to argue against that, but you never know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. So we, we will post all of your contact information that you want to share on the show notes. So yeah, Dr. Yates, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the get healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.